The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Maybe for those of you who are really uh, working with these 16 instructions, hopefully you're discovering this very important truth, I guess, We'd say, I know it sounds it's a little presumptuous when we say use that word truth, but there is a sort of lawfulness, lawful truth about our mind, which is uh, intention really matters. And that that's really helpful when we're working with a set of instructions, and especially, you know, if you have a conditioned mind like I do, you know, it, it sort of runs the show, the conditioning, the habit, the momentum of my mind's habit sort of runs the show. And so then we get this set of instructions that seems to point to more exalted, refined states, right? And it's very easy to imagine, we basically conceive of this idea of, here's my messy mind, my rough and tumble mind, and here's what I imagine the Buddha, the Buddha's instructions are pointing to, and then we imagine some vast distance between those two things. But uh, what's useful is to actually check out, like, when we actually find each of the 16 intentions to train our mind, you know, to observe, to know, whatever the instruction says, and when we really connect with that intention and then see the effect on the mind of that intention. Because that, with the thing that gets messed up is we think, I'm doing these 16 steps. And because that never really works out well, <laughs> we have a lot of evidence that it's not going to work out well. Because, but we don't do it. It happens. What we do is we allow, we in a way, instead of like me doing it, We find the intention, we recognize the intention. Oh yeah, I do want to be with the breath. I do want to be with the body. An intention, what is an intention? It's an actual impulse or movement of the heart. We have lots of intentions, but we can, it matters which intentions we're keeping in mind. Because that's what empowers the intention. It's like if we're sitting at home steaming about somebody who insulted us and we keep finding the intention to want to get even with them, you know, and make something bad happen to them, that intention is probably going to leak out, you know, we'll probably end up, even if we know better, because we've been keeping that intention in mind. I mean, I've seen myself do this with my my spouse, with Gwen. 
you know, it's like a grumbling about something. But on the surface, you know, the mind knows I should say that. You know, I shouldn't even be thinking that. But here I am thinking it, you know. But, but if, I, if my mind really dwells in that place, really waters that intention by keeping it in mind, then it generally gets expressed one way or another in the relationship. Even though I know better. Oh, I should have done that. That wasn't a wise, useful thing to do or say or be, you know, way to be. And, you know, we just have uh, one week left, and then, of course, the rest of our lives (laughs) to practice these 16 steps. And... uh, Remember, it's, it's really just getting a sense of the map, even in terms of the four tetrads, like the texture, the training of each of the four, and really sensing how, believe it or not, this mind, it knows something about this territory, whether we want to admit it or not. And if you don't feel that that's true, you probably actually haven't given yourself a chance because doubt or whatever has gotten in the way. I mean, one of the things that gets in the way is that our home life, how we're earning our living, the kind of relationships we're having with our significance, our pets, our partners, the people we live with, our friends, our family. You know, if everything's out of balance or if we're living in a war zone or impoverished or being mistreated in some way, then it isn't that easy to turn inward, right? And what really would be more useful, maybe a more useful emphasis is like bringing our attention to how can I harmonize with the difficult circumstances in my life so that they're not so difficult and there's more safety and more of a sense of belonging however we can do that. Because if we can do that to some degree, then when we do sit down, the mind's a lot more settled. And it, and it's more suitable for this investigation. Like, can I, you know, and you know the routine, right? I, I go through the, the basic skill sets. Like, can I drop my addiction to the diversity of my experience here in the present moment, including everything I can think of? And can I instead just pay attention to this one thing, the physicality of breathing in and out? Is my mind, does it have the capacity to be interested in something relatively ordinary? Breathing in, breathing out. Not my mental image of the breath, not my idea of the breath, but just the physicality of breathing in and breathing out. And letting go of all those other, you know, mostly conceived or generated, constructed thoughts, ideas, letting go of all that, that feels good. And we call that seclusion. So that's where we pick up the thread of pleasure, right there at the beginning. It feels good. Simplicity feels good. But there's really no end 
following the thread of simplicity. This is just the very first step. I mean, the, actually, the very first step is what I mentioned a few moments ago, just harmonizing with our life situation, whatever that is. Because what we're doing is we're uh, simplifying, like, instead of being the one who hates my life situation or doesn't think it's fair, it may not be fair, probably isn't fair, but it is how it is, our life situations, like the kind of health we have, the kind of where we live, the relationships we have, it's already this way. And it always makes sense to harmonize. And harmonize, don't think that means we're being stupid and letting people take advantage of us. Harmonizing means we're basically doing what we're doing in this more subtle realm, but we're doing in this more relational, on this more relational level. We're aware. We're sensitive. And with that breadth and sensitivity, that breadth of sensitivity about how it all works, <laughs> like... Uh, just sensing cause and effect in all of our relationships that we have, that's the beginning of harmonizing. When we're willing to own the dynamics, the relational dynamics, and then because we're feeling and sensing those relational dynamics, then how I participate in those relations is wiser. And it's easier to harmonize because I'm being honest. I'm relying on awareness, clear comprehension, as opposed to my fixed ideas or my opinions. Oh, this is how it works. And we might um, find ourselves like managing a relationship, and it's like, yeah, I could be angry at you, but it just works so much better for my well-being seems like your well-being, everybody's well-being, if I relate to you in this other way. And it's just about, you know, it's like pragmatic. And, and we just do the same thing as we go along this uh, set of instructions, like how to drop the mind's fixation on diversity of experience, how to open up to the totality of the body, Really owning the reality of embodiment. Oh, there is embodiment. That's the third instruction. It's like, like it or not, there is embodiment. And I could be forever in this mode of wanting to fix it, wanting to tweak it, wanting it to be better. Or I could say yes to embodiment. Because right now it is like this. And it's not like we're giving up on fixing our body forever, but we're realizing an acceptance of embodiment. Like, oh, that's harmonizing with embodiment, and that feels good. And that's that embodied calm, embodied well-being, because the mind isn't in conflict. And now we're working with the second tetrad in harmonizing. We have this mind this mental activity, this stew of mental activity, it's a very alive dynamic because of all of the forces in play. Right? It is quite active, our minds. There's an inherent restlessness 
in our mental activity. And so the question is, can we shift our understanding of this activity? It's instead of like thinking, I need to get in control of the mind, can we just see it? You know how it is when we are sitting in a beautiful meadow and we see the trees and the leaves fluttering and we see the grass moving and the buzz of insects and, you know, all the other activity. And and the heart, with that natural activity, the heart can delight in it. I, I love how alive the meadow is. But when we look at the natural expanse of our mind and all the activity of our mind and the play of emotions and one thought leading to another and the activity of the body, it's like, oh no, that nature is disgusting. You know, give me the Grand Tetons or the Glacier Park or, you know, the North Shore. But it's still, it's really just nature. And it can be observed, right? And that's that shift. To keep joy in mind, we have to be willing to drop our very strong, fixed ideas of what this is. You know, have me, having a mind and body. And we have to sense it free of our fixed ideas. And then we'll sense, and initially it will be quite faint, Because our ideas of my life, of this experience I'm having right now, they're very dominant, those ideas. But it's almost like we're looking through our established view of my existential situation here into this more simple reality, which is it's just nature. And this nature, like all nature, is quite alive. All of it interdependently happening on its own. There's no center to nature. No control center. And that's what we begin to intuit. We have to intuit that underlying reality, this is nature, not self. It's the beginning of an insight. And it and it's more about not believing the fixed ideas than trying hard to experience joy. It's more relaxation, you know, like we're seeing through something. So trying hard generally doesn't work here. Trying hard to sense joy. It's more like a an act of faith. There is joy here. There is an aliveness here. There is a buzz. That's why I think I mentioned when we first talked about joy, just the sensing the vibration, the, you know, the just kind of like sensation can be, we can attune to the movement of sensation instead of the idea that it's, you know, a fixed throbbing or a fixed hardness or heaviness or whatever. There's something alive in that. And then the heart starts to feel like, I belong. So this is a very subjective experience. That ease of heart, that inner happiness, it's pleasure. It's, it's really the essence of mental pleasure. 
And it's really related because it's subjective. It's not, it's this subjective sense like, I'm okay here. I belong here. I don't need things to be other. So it's like a, a real shift from that <coughs> neurotic restlessness of trying to become somebody, trying to get an experience, trying to you know, establish myself with this fixed idea. These are the, called the floods, you know, the effluence of the mind, the kind of nature of that neurotic restlessness. And what we're sensing is something other than that. Like maybe it's okay for no good reason, <laughs> you know, no good external reason. Maybe it's just really okay. Being is okay. Being here, being now, being this. It's so counterintuitive. So we have to look for it. We don't look for it, we don't find it. So each one of them is a little leap of faith. Like, is there ease? Is there that deep, clear well of contentedness here and now? Can I attune? Can the mind attune to that? Is there any semblance of that as I'm breathing in? Any semblance of that as I'm breathing out. And to really take the time, you know, in different places in your practice, when it's available, really hang out there, allow it to suffuse, to touch everything, until nothing seems untouched by that pleasure. Because then, the mind's relationship to mental activity which has mostly been in the service of me finding safety, me finding pleasure, me becoming who I want to be, me imagining this scenario and that scenario and looking for some satisfaction somewhere where I'll be safe. Now, because the heart feels so deeply content, it can have a different relationship mental activity. Oh yeah, it's just what it is. <laughs> you know? Just what it is. Just like, you know, those of you who raise kids, you know, just knowing the kids are there. Or I was a classroom teacher for a while, just, oh yeah, they're all, you know, it's okay. No fires to put out. Just the buzz of life. Just in the sense of our mental activity, and really letting that just naturally mature into a quietude. We're really starting to see the space between thoughts, between different mental activities coming and going. It's like, and you see how that naturally allows for the third tetrad, the space of the mind. Oh. Here and now. Can you sense it now? The space of the mind? Space of the present moment? And even if there's some self-consciousness or sort of trying hard, but it's like uh, we're developing this 
skill of not being confused by bodily or mental activities. It's just like, uh, and we can do that. We can be in the middle of a, you know, whirlwind. That's it's really nice to to actually do your practice someplace where where there is a lot of activity. Like that's why people like to practice outside, you know, with just the sounds and the breezes and you know all the activity, and to realize because this is really the essence of meditation. There's stillness and there's activity. And the activity isn't a problem for stillness. And stillness isn't a problem for activity. And that's really the shift with the third tetrad, where we're experiencing the space of the mind. We're experiencing something that isn't affected. Ultimately, you know, all four of these steps here, experiencing the space, gladdening the space of the mind, stilling, concentrating the space of the mind, releasing, liberating the space of the mind. They're really just the maturing of that insight, where we're sensing that. And the nth degree of that, the fourth instruction, so the twelfth instruction, releasing the mind, liberating the mind, it's when, because that intuition of the space is so clear and strong, then anything extra is naturally shed, including the more, the most subtle, uh, like even the subtle claiming of that silence, of that peace. Because it's extra. So everything drops away. So it's a, that mind is empty of self-centered activity. That's what's released. And that releasing isn't something you or I do, it's something that naturally happens. So the whole process with the third tetrad, and remember, you know, sometimes after a few minutes, you can go right to the third tetrad. Once you just settle, that sense of space might be really strong for some of you. And then you might lose it, you might get caught up in some drama, and then you can go back there when conditions are right. So... Remember, it's not always this linear process through the 16 steps. But when you're, when there is that sense, the mind is able to sense or intuit the space and not be so caught, not be so identified with the activity of the mind or the activity of the body, sights, sensations, thought, uh, sounds, smells and tastes and the activity of the mind, you know, perceptions and thoughts and feeling tone. And it can really abide and relax and trust in the space. Then just to, it's really about appreciating the space, the silence, the stillness, the simplicity. And it's like I mentioned in the, I think in the guided instructions tonight, it's really getting clear, like it's a a different way of knowing because we're really keeping in mind what's not there. What makes it so beautiful and worthy of attention is what's not there, not what's there. 
So if you're looking for what's there, you're going to feel some tension. And your, your mind's going to get dependent on concepts. So it, that's why abiding, trusting, relaxing is more useful than uh, trying hard. It's really, again, you know, all these steps have this uh, quality of a, a bit of a leap of faith. Like, you might have some thoughts arise at times, can it be this simple? Can it be this easy? Shouldn't there be me doing something? Shouldn't I have to be trying harder? So be on the lookout for those thoughts. Because we're learning about this fork in the road from being the doer doing something, being the meditator meditating to experiencing the mind, abiding, trusting, releasing the mind, releasing the mind of everything that's extra. And this is a profound insight, whether the mind drops into a deep state of absorption or the mind has a deepening of insight, that it's very affecting. Because the mind, our sort of ordinary mind, is unfamiliar with this truth, which is here, but we're unfamiliar about it. And being unaware, being, uh, yeah, having, having not realized this about the heart makes us relate to the grossness of our experience in a kind of desperate way. Because it's all, we, there's this wrong understanding, this is all there is. So I'm going to grab what I can get. But when we, when the mind realizes something else, then it, it changes bit by bit, inside by inside, or deepening by deepening. It really changes the mind's relationship to sense experience. All sense experience. Even really nice sense experience. Really wholesome sense experience. There's just a gradual, for most people, a very gradual shift from one, the mind seemingly dependent on sense experience in order to get what it wants, satisfaction, happiness, or whatever, to non-dependence on sense experience. Now I want to say a couple other things tonight, but maybe I'll stop here. I want to go through the fourth tetrad so we can work on that as homework this week. But before I do that, let me just see if there are some questions, either from those of you online. Um, uh, hopefully you know how to raise your digital hand and people in the room. Uh, people in the room, I'm going to ask you, if you don't mind, to come sit up here so I can hand you the mic so people... Otherwise, if you don't feel like that, I can repeat your question, especially if it's short. And I won't put the camera on you, but that way they'll be able to hear you. Yeah, so questions about, especially the third tetrad, that come to mind.
and even your experiences, people willing to share your own deepening, playing, working with those four instructions, experiencing the mind, gladdening the mind, stilling, concentrating the mind, releasing, liberating the mind. Yeah, Mary, one second here while I get the mic. Okay, go ahead, Mary. Yeah, I just wonder, um, I'm a little confused by concentrating the mind. It, um, if you could just say a bit more, I, it seems like stilling it, I think is the word that you use, but concentrating, <laughs> it's hard not to be trying to do something when I hear that word. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, thanks, Mary. Yeah, but that's true for all, you know, just because of the way it's written, things are written in the form of somebody doing something. But right from the start, you know, the Buddhist teachings, this is a natural process. Things unfold naturally. So the intervention, as I said at the beginning tonight, is really finding the intention to experience the mind. Being actually like finding that actual interest to experience the mind, to appreciate or to see it as beautiful, this space, the silent, uh, still, quiet space of the mind. And the stilling too, the concentrating, it's really that, that sort of deepening intuition about whatever's extra can be shed. Like when wisdom or the mind that knows, wisdom and awareness, when it sees or senses what's extra, then shedding happens. It's like the cause for the dropping away of what's extra is seeing that it's extra which just means seeing it for what it is. Because any mental activity, any identification, any selfing whatsoever, is seen as being extra or not the space of the mind. All of those, even the most subtle constructs, conceiving, conceptions, conceits, even the most subtle is an activity my mind is really peaceful. That's an activity. Like there's peace without the conception, the mind's really peaceful. Just like there's this moment without the conception, this is the moment that I'm having. But we don't need the conception, any conceiving, there's that famous uh, sutta that I, I won't do justice to, but, you know, where the Buddha is basically saying all conceiving, you know, is a, yeah, is a cause for suffering. It's totally unnecessary. And it's really the wrong understanding of conceiving, but the way we get to that, the way we see uh, the way we develop a proper relationship with conceiving is realizing it, all of it can be shed. 
drop. Right? So it's like that implosion where the mind realizes it's not dependent on any conception, then it it has so much more freedom with conceptions. Because <laughs> it relates to conceptions differently. But now when my mind conceives of me having an experience, the way the mind relates to that conception is as if it's true, as if it's real. But when the mind realizes the mind not dependent, free of conceiving conceptions, conceits, then that mind's different going forward. Even in the world, back in the world of Clearly, you know, I mean, according, I'm obviously not fully awakened, but, you know, when we hear the stories of fully awakened ones, you know, they, they seem to do quite well with conceptions. You know, they use language and they can conceive and they're okay with personal pronouns. But there's something evidently different in those minds. And even for those of us with some deepening of insight, it really changes how we are as we just kind of navigate the world of conceptions. So the concentration piece is really, uh, it's really understanding that place of cause and effect or the lawfulness, like how shedding works here, how the space of the mind gets purified so it becomes more and more empty of what's extra, of selfing, of conceiving. And the way it does is, like when we really understand how beautiful it is, then what's extra starts to stand out as being extra. And then shedding happens, naturally, without a meditator doing that. And the, But the meditator, in a sense, is the one that's understanding the cause and effect. The wisdom, which is also impersonal, but wisdom is deepening here. It's really understanding how the mind, the space of the mind, rather, it gets purified here. Yeah, thank you, Mary. Any follow-up to that? Hello, this is Sean here. <clears throat> and I found it very helpful for you to talk about harmonizing with your life circumstances. And now I'm also interested in like how meditating with others, like in the morning, in person, or online, for me, I think having good posture and meditating with others helps me drop drop into stillness easier. And maybe I'll be able to meditate by myself and drop into stillness, but for some reason it's easier when I'm with other people who are meditating. Yeah, because I think it's, for, for me at least, it's uh, it supports confidence when we're with other people, and there's a kind of integrity, like um, that we're sort of in it together. And I think, in a very real sense, we are. We create some momentum, so it really does matter our how we're showing up with our own <laughs> practice. Thank you, Sean. Let's go to Jack next. I um, along these same lines. When I first did these 16 steps, when I got to, I understand, I experienced sort of the consolidation that happens with the breath 
and then the body awareness, calming the body arisings. And then I was so taken by the word joy because it was so contrary to my conception of the word that I just, I, I just stayed there. I just couldn't fathom. How is this joy? And that became sort of a gateway insight is that, oh, I have this idea of what joy is. But if I look at, be with what is actually happening here right now, it's not, you know, jump in the air, click your heels, Disneyland joy. It's this other joy that is born out of that coming together of the breath and the body and then how that joy sort of dissipates or deepens into ease of heart. This That all just sort of became this, again, sort of this gateway into really looking directly at my experience for what these various instructions were saying. And and more and more I'm having that experience of just sort of, like you said, sort of watching the mind impersonally just, and not having to pick it up. Anyway, I just, I wanted to share that. Yeah, very powerful, Jack. And, and I think that's right. It's the way I interpret what I heard you saying was, uh, it is quite profound when we, it's, it's a life changing thing when we find that turning inward turns out to be so relevant and providing what the heart has been seeking forever externally in relationships and sense experiences. And it's a real game changer because that's where our interest goes much more. Now, we'll still be interested in movies and relationships and things like that, but it really starts up uh, an important turning where on some level we're understanding, no, 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 this is where the game is, turning inward, not uh, finding, you know, new relationships. I mean, we will, but it's not, it's not what it's really about. The, what the heart really understands is, I need to understand this. And that will make all of that out there work so much better. So was it, uh, is it Raha? I can't quite see your picture and you don't have your name there. Oh, yes, it is. Oh, hi, Raha. Okay, go ahead. Um, I, I'm thinking that, um, in my experience, um, it doesn't necessarily need to be the breath that creates that rest of those 16 other, the 15 other steps. Uh, I feel like I have got that joy, um, into, like, listening to a sad song, starting with the sad song, and then all of a sudden, there's this connection that you have with yourself, and then 
that brings you joy, even though you were right in the middle of a sad song. Or sometimes reading a book, and it's not the content of the book, it's just when you are reading, you get somehow that connection within, at that quietness and that focus on one thing, that oneness of um, that inner connection, I feel like, brings that joy for me. Not necessarily always, it's the breath. I'm wondering, could it be like the hearing experience? Could it be the seeing, the same, those, all those eight things, if we pay attention, if we get to that oneness with it, would that also bring the joy? Yeah, there's probably an infinite number of ways. And like metta, loving-kindness practice, right, we can go very quickly to joy and ease from doing a little loving-kindness practice. Or you might be just in a spacious place in the middle of the day, you put down your work, and you might be right at uh, experiencing the space of the mind, the space of the present moment. So all of these places are always here and now. Where else could they be? But they get obscured by the habits of the mind. That's all. Just the habits of the mind are obscuring all of this territory. So the more confidence we have, the more we're just going to start sensing the joy. It's, it's like good practice for all of us now that we've been working with these 16 steps to just be curious in the middle of our day. You know, just, you can even use the words, you know, breathing in, experiencing ease, breathing out, experiencing ease. And just see as you're hanging out in the grocery store doing your business, whether you can really touch into that happiness of contentment, that really deep sense that it's okay in in a really profound way, right there in the middle of a busy day. It's really important that you're not, uh, that we're not stuck into thinking that meditative experience is somehow different than just daily life. Yeah, Sam, you want to sit up here? What I'm curious about is what about the nature of experience um, builds trust in the experience. Um, I, I think some of the the, the instructions suggest, or, or suggesting to me anyway, that experiencing the mind as it is, right, or experiencing the conditions or that are supportive of joy or supportive of present moment awareness, somehow cause the things that are extra to go to become. To, to be let go of and I, I feel like there are moments where oh like a cloud moves out of the mind and some joy on this condition is nice like oh I'm, gonna, I'm at common ground this condition is nice but I, I guess I, I'm trying to build up some trust in the practice that just the experiencing of these things repeatedly it is enough of a condition to build up that trust and I'm just curious about what is it about the nature of experience that does that, or is that just, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that's even a question. Maybe that's too much of a concept. I don't know. 
Yeah, I guess that's just my question. What is it about the nature of experience that is enough? Yeah, and this is probably a good place for a transition, what Sam's bringing up. And that way I can uh, take some time to talk about the fourth tetrad, too. Because the way I understand what Sam was talking about is this, uh, it's really what makes the Buddhist teachings different than a lot of the other spiritual religious teachings, as I understand it at least. Um, And that is, this uh, it's about renunciation. So the 16 steps are not about a person becoming awakened or a person getting something called awakening, right? It's really the whole process is one of letting go, of shedding, of dropping away. And so the question like, how does that happen? How does one do that? It, it, it really comes from a couple things. One is a, a sense, like, if we have enough good fortune in life, and we've had some good things, just on that relative level, good relationships, good health, and seeing the limitations of that, or just being really reflective how whatever good I get in life, whatever good I set in motion in life, um, the self can't have it or own it or keep it. But there's different things that turn the mind toward renunciation. And it really has to do with just seeing the underlying setup of being a being trying to be safe or being a being trying to own, trying to have, trying to get satisfied and never really being able to get there. And then looking around and seeing nobody else seems to be able to get there. There's this endless restlessness among us beings, even those of us who are relatively privileged. And so then the mind kind of like, well, is there anything else to do but play the game like everybody else? And then we stumble upon it, these teachings. Because it's not easy to come to renunciation as a path. It's just not intuitive. Like as an animal, living with our animal programming, it doesn't really stand out like, oh, I could cultivate this non-attachment to existence. And lo and behold, it turns out to be a liberating way to be, to have an existence. Like, that's what makes the Buddha's insight so amazing, because he did it without someone pointing it out. Now, it's so totally appropriate, having heard what I just said, to have a lot of skepticism. But the question is, are you willing to check it out? And we can check it out in all kinds of ways. Like, some of you who are raising teenagers now, you can just see, like... Uh, like, oh, this person is a force of nature. I can do my job as a parent, but I can do my job as a parent with attachment, or I can do my job as a parent without attachment. And I'll just see what works better. Or, I, oh, I'm, I'm in this committed relationship with this other person. 
you know, and be really messy and hard to make it otherwise. So I can be in this relationship with attachment, or I can be in this relationship without attachment. Or look at, I've got an aging body here. I can have this aging body with attachment, or I can have it with non-attachment. And we just start building confidence. Because the 16 steps are all about renunciation. And it's good for you to get a, a clear sense as you continue, you know, for at least another week and then periodically, hopefully, you know, just work the map every few months or every week or just whatever interval seems appropriate. But really understand each of the steps is a, a building confidence in letting go, building confidence in renunciation. This is the way for the heart to realize what the heart most deeply seeks. The heart doesn't seek pizza and ice cream. The heart seeks the release from the grip. And pizza and ice cream seems like it will give us some release from the grip. And it does for a little bit of time. Because there's some excitement when we get some sense to light and we're not feeling oppressed for 15 minutes or whatever. But, so we're really kind of following, well, what really delivers that? And so when we then stumble upon this path of renunciation, however we do it, whether through our own intuition or some pointing out, we stumble upon some teachings that then resonates with our experience. And that's the fourth tetrad, right? Because... Uh, he changes the, the, the basic instruction changes here. It's one trains oneself. I will breathe in observing impermanence, right? So we're observing the reality of impermanence. And remember impermanence, well, we don't have to try to see impermanence. We're just being intimate with the breath, with whatever's happening in the moment, whatever's predominant. We're just doing our best to be intimate because this is impermanent. Like one way, just again, conceptually to think about it is there's a moment of mind, my mind, this mind knowing an experience, and then that ceases. And then there's another moment of mind, another experience arises and it's known, and then that ceases. So this is, you could call it the staccato model. You know, like physics, you can think about things in sort of this sort of one moment at a time. But it's just helpful because then what the experience will be is there's this moment of reality and then there's another moment of reality. And although those two moments of reality obviously are related, they're conditionally related, they're different moments of mind. They're different realities. And this is a subjective experience. This isn't some philosophical statement. You really see the staccato nature. So impermanence can be more like a flow. It can also be this sort of, and really seeing like, oh, there's this moment and then there's this moment. And it's sort of a strange feeling because it really rubs against the fixed idea that whatever this is, is continuous. And it's not. I mean, it's continuous because that's the story we tell ourselves. 
So basically, we're just, we're not trying to see this. Any of these ideas are only supportive if they support being intimate. And then, uh, intimate, and then seeing the nature of things. And when we're really seeing the nature of things, dispassion arises naturally. You don't have to try to be dispassionate because you want to be a good Buddhist. It is the natural result of being intimate with conditions as they are, or reality, or the way things are. It's a fading away. That's what dispassion means. It's a fading away of thinking that sense experience will deliver something to somebody. That dependence or attachment or identification goes anywhere except attention. That's what fades away. And as that fades and fades and fades, then the mind realizes a moment of mind empty of selfing, empty of that self trying to get somewhere, hold something, become someone. And that sets up the relinquishing or the letting go, which is just sort of keeping letting go in mind. It's like the mind realizes or wisdom realizes that that non-attachment can be the object of awareness. And, and reality is different when, when what the mind is, like it's not me trying to navigate the moment, it's the mind keeping in mind the non-grasping. I really like that definition, I'll end here. Ajahn Shah calls that the reality of non-grasping. That, that's the, that's the deep insight. We're realizing the mind free of grasping. And then keeping that in mind. That uproots the latent tens- tendency to grasp. So this is similar to step 12, right? The releasing, liberating of the mind. But now the mind is discerning cause and effect. Like seeing what when being aware of what does letting go get established in the mind in that way? In a way that is uprooting the tendency to take things personally. And later, you know, maybe at the time of the Buddha, but shortly after, they call the initial deep insight, penetrating insight, stream entry. And then when all the latent tendencies to grasp have been uprooted, that's fourth level of awakening or becoming an awakened one, an arahat. But it's not clear whether those four stages of awakening was talked a lot about at the time of the Buddha, whether that was a a later, not way later, but later development as the monks and nuns kind of systematized things. Anyway, we'll come back to this for our last week, next week, and we'll have small groups and remember, this is really just our normal insight practice. We're being intimate with the way it is. We're noticing the effect, which is dispassion, letting go, and tastes of freedom that arise out of that letting go. Right? That's hopefully that's how we've been practicing a lot. And so you can be working with the fourth tetrad. It's just so much more powerful if your mind is in a very refined place and you're doing it, right? But you can do it at any time, and it's valuable at any time with any kind of mind that we might have in daily life.
Robin just sent out um, uh, email to everybody in our email list um, with the retreats coming up, the uh, year-end retreat, our 31st annual. When Fricky Shelley Graff and I will be leading that retreat December 26th through the 31st, we'll end at 10 a.m. on the 31st of December. And you can do that online, and you can do it here at the city center. We're hoping to have, you know, 30, 40 people here, and then about 15 people practicing at the retreat center. So we're, this is our new style where, you know, we have people online, people in the city center, people at the retreat center, and technology bringing us together in one beautiful retreat container. So join in if that makes sense. We've been doing it obviously for a long time. It's one of the main ways that as a community we've really deepened our practices, if it makes sense. I know it doesn't those days don't make sense for everyone. But if it does make sense, consider that, joining in for that. And thanks for coming everyone. Have a good last week of practice. Oh yeah. So Carlos is going to come up and mention a, a study group that goes with this. So we had a reading group that grew out of this class. Uh, you know, Bob is there. Bob Sang started it. Um, and people have been coming in and out. And now there is five of us running it, and we would like to have some more people if interested. And we are at the point that we are choosing the next book to read. So if anybody is interested, just... Uh, contact, they can contact me, and oh, I'll yeah. forward it to yeah, you, okay. Carlos. Yeah, okay. just we, send we me meet, an email. We meet every third Thursday. But Zoom too? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So yeah. Zoom people too. Yeah, Zoom people. Great. Yeah. Thanks, Carlos. Take care, everybody. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.